I want to move into what is the strangest series when we talk about a community that is built on in-depth learning and while we're doing things, you know, we're really going deep. Someone's described Nechamu Ami in the past and now Shalom Mekin as this isn't simple teaching, like you got to think about this. And so it's quite ironic that now we launch into a series called Got Milk, which is in essence the most elementary of considerations. But I think it is Absolutely, as I said last week, foundational. And here's where I start. I love the church. I love the church. I love the people in the church. The church is good. The church has done good. And it is certainly better to be affiliated with a church than not affiliated with a church in most, in most settings. The church teaches some very, very good things. But if I was fully in line with the church, we would not be here on Shabbat celebrating the seventh day that God commanded as the Sabbath. We would not be having a message centered on the elementary principles of Messiah, the elementary doctrine of Christ. And I want to be clear, that is exactly what Hebrews says this is. Let us move past these elementary principles of Messiah. We talked about that last week. We are a messianic synagogue. That means that Messiah is at the center of what we do. <clears throat> These are messianic elementary principles, highly misunderstood. Messiah foundations, whether or not you're in a church or a synagogue, every follower of Yeshua should know the elementary doctrine. They are important. So I love the church and I love my brothers and sisters there. But my calling is not really there. My calling is to those who are looking for the something's missing. Something that they heard in church or have read or understood their entire life to be the case. And then one day they say, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. From what they've read in their Bibles and said, wait a minute, why isn't our church doing that? Or something they've read in their Bible and they say, wait a minute, why is our church doing that? And it is equally as much my calling to the Jewish people who have looked and observed the activities of the church for some 1900 years and said, eh, that's not a Messiah that belongs to me. That is not a place I belong or could ever be. But there is an important point to stress about the church. The church is not monolithic. The Baptist church is not the Episcopal church, and the Methodist church is not the Catholic church. And, you know, we, we, we would be guilty, and evangelicals, the evangelical church is its own unique animal and own set of different beliefs and Protestantism and, 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 and um, Pentecostalism and all these different things. It's impossible to look and say, the church believes X. And if we did that, we would be guilty of the very same offense that they do to the Jewish people when they say, the Jews believe Judaism is certainly not monolithic from the days of Yeshua and certainly up until now. 
And we've talked a lot about that. You can't look and say, that's what the Jews believe. So we want to be careful when we are talking about the church that we're not saying across the board, this is it. This is what they all believe. And finally, this is the last thing I will say about the the church in this series as we move forward. Um, I do not intend any offense toward the church because of all the things I said at the very beginning of this message. But here we go. There is, a, there is one sort of central thing in Judaism across the channels. What is the central core component of Judaism? Well, yeah, I'm, well, that's a, that's a trick question. But what I mean is this right here. What I mean is that Judaism is primarily built, of course, on a covenant with Abraham and a number of other things. But at the end of the day, if you walk into about any synagogue, you're going to see an ark and a Torah. Now, that's changed some, too. There's some, and some wacky interpretations of Torah and all kinds of things. But Torah is a component. Now, I mean, is a centrality for Judaism. Now, we can transfer that, having just said nothing's monolithic, that sort of is. We can transfer that right in to the church to make the point we're going to talk about today. At the the very core, the essence, everything in in the church of Jesus Christ, clearly the most important, the supreme truth, the highest goal is the gospel. The gospel, the gospel, and there's a lot of associated parts of the gospel, the cross and all kinds of other things. But at the end of the day, the central component, the thing that must happen is the gospel must be preached. The gospel. Euangelion in Greek, evangelion in Latin, the good news. Man, yes! Right? I mean, as far as the elementary principles go, that is, right, the most elementary and most important thing. The entire church is built upon this. And so the question to start our journey is, in got milk, the gospel, what is the good news? What is the gospel? Here are a few samples. It's from a Catholic website. God is love, for God so loved the world that he sent, gave his only, one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And I was reading this from a Catholic priest who was attending an evangelical conference where they wanted him to define the, the gospel according to Catholicism. And he says, I knew, what was, I knew what they were getting at. Many evangelicals pride themselves on the fact that they can succinctly sum up the good news in a way that people find compelling and helpful, whereas many Catholics, it seems, get tongue-tied. For most evangelicals, the gospel is some version of justification by grace through faith. We are sinners, hopelessly incapable of saving ourselves through any accomplishment of our own. But Jesus has died for our sins, and if we place our trust in him, we will find eternal salvation. Some refer to the Romans road. Anyone ever heard of the Romans road? Any Christians in here? Uh, been down the Romans road to salvation, right? It's a series of texts from Paul to the Romans that sums up this, itiner- this, um, this, this itinerary. 
Here's something from crosswalk.com. This is, this is Pastor uh, J.D. Greer, relative, relatively well-known, where our question, remember, is what is the good news? What is the gospel? It's not just, here's Pastor Greer. It's not just the diving board off which we jump into the pool of Christianity. It's not just the milk that nourishes us until we are mature enough for meat. The gospel is the meat. And the dessert, too, for that matter. More than just the 101 introductory class to Christianity, it's the entire campus at which classes are held. And here it is, Pastor Greer. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Religion couldn't help us. New resolutions to change couldn't help us. Jesus, the baby born of a virgin in Bethlehem, was the Son of God. He did what we couldn't do. He lived a righteous life that pleased God. Still, he got crucified on a cross under the curse of sin. He did that for us. He died in our place. But Jesus was raised from the grave to offer new life in his spirit. Jesus gives this new life to all who call upon him in faith and summarize it all. The gospel is, and this permeates tons of places. 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel is, as Paul teaches, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Amen, brother. Right? And we can agree. We can agree there is deep truth in those things that have been said right there. That everything there is a true statement. And we build and bank our lives here and now on that future hope that is promised through those series of Romans Road statements. But that brings up a question, actually a whole bunch of questions, if we're really thinking about this. If you've read the Bible, is this what the Bible says? Or better phrased, is this all the Bible says. Who actually defines the gospel? Who gets to say they came up with the gospel? How simple is the gospel? Is the gospel correctly defined by what we should now call the evangelical gospel, which in essence says what we've just spent that time saying. It says, Jesus died to save you from your sins. Believe in him for the forgiveness of sins and you will go to heaven when you die. Does that to you, I'm asking now for your opinion, does that sound familiar in terms of a gospel message that you've heard before? Well, so the overarching question I would ask, though, is something missing? Because remember, that's who I'm talking to. And I don't want to complicate the gospel, God forbid, if the gospel really is that simple. And for many, 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 many disciples of Yeshua, it is. But if it is that simple, why do we have four books comprised of 79 chapters of material about the good news? Well, that's obvious, Rabbi. We needed to, they needed to show that Jesus was bringing a message that had never been heard before, that he was unique among Israel, that nothing like that had ever happened before, and to document that he was indeed the one who was going to die and bring us to heaven. But here's a challenge. 
The Gospels show that he is of the Davidic line. He's not the first one who's of the Davidic line. The Gospels show he was a miracle worker. He is not the first one of those. Though that water into wine and walking on the sea thing was pretty stellar. It needed to be shown that he had a unique, never heard before message, which he did not actually. Now, before you throw rotten vegetables, we've talked about what the gospel is supposed to be. You ready for what it is? Matthew 33. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, What did he say? I want to say it one more time. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or has drawn near or is in the midst of arriving. The reason we have these chapters, these teachings in the good news gospels is because they are the teachings primarily of the rabbi Jesus because he was delivering the true good news and it needed some explanation and some verification that he was indeed the one upon whom Israel had waited. For what? A promise that God had made from Genesis through Moses, through the prophets, that he was indeed the one that Israel was waiting for. To do what? To restore the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at the heart of the good news. I'm sorry to tell us all, it is bigger than us. It is bigger than our personal salvation, and it is bigger than a prayer you said when you were two years old or 200 years old. It's much, much bigger. And in answer to our question, what is the good news? In the good news that I've presented to you up until this point, did you once hear me say the kingdom in the explanation of that gospel? Did you once hear me say the restoration of Israel in that gospel? Did you once hear me say anything about actually what Jesus said other than repentance? Well, that's a good question. Why did Yeshua tell them and us to repent? It's not even that difficult. It's one sentence. You ready? Here's how it works. Repent. Why? Part two. What is part two? Just make sure we get it. Repent. Four causative. Something's about to happen. You need to do this because of this. You see, here's what he said. He, he, He steps up and he says, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, believe in me for the forgiveness of sins and go to heaven. No. 
From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice he picked up John's message and rolled with it because it was God's message. And it was being delivered now through Yeshua. Why repent? Because the kingdom is at hand. Now, one might suppose I am being semantical with you, if that's a word, or that these are semantics. Well, clearly the kingdom is heaven. I mean, that's where we're going when we die, to float on clouds with the angels and play trumpets and, you know, eat bonbons. That is not the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) And we'll talk about that, actually, but not right now. He's telling them to get this right because the kingdom is coming soon. It was not good news to Israel that Israel would cease to exist and everyone would vaporize up into the clouds. Those aren't the promises. That's not consistent. They were not waiting for God to come down from heaven, pardon their sins, so that then they could, you know, jet back up to heaven with him. That's not in there. The good news is that the kingdom is coming, and with repentance, a prerequisite for that, the kingdom was arriving, it was near fulfillment, and in a sense, with and in Yeshua, it had arrived. Therefore, we must repent. What does repent mean? Return to God. Come back to the Torah. Listen to what your rabbi is telling you, the one who has amazing insight, so much that the people were amazed every time he spoke. Listen to what he's telling you. Repent, return to God, for here comes the kingdom, the one whose authority they marveled at. How, did, how, how would they do that? They would indeed put their trust in him as what? Mashiach, the restorer of the kingdom. Now, now, just listen. Listen, listen to, based on the Romans Road gospel and the things that I read you already, listen, listen to this. Mark 1.10, the crowds greet Jesus on his way in. Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Mark tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was also himself waiting expectantly for what? His personal salvation? The kingdom of God. And they were listening to this in Luke 19. They were listening. He went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. They were confused about the kingdom, but they were certainly looking for it. And Yeshua is talking about it. Jesus, the thief, says, remember me where when you come into the heavenly floating with the angels? When you come in to your kingdom. And the disciples in Acts 1, Lord, is this the time when you will restore us to float on the clouds? No, will you make Israel everything that God promised it would be? Will you now restore the kingdom? And we said, Avinu What are we saying? This is the only known prayer that Jesus taught to his disciples. And what does it say? Our Father in heaven, 
hallowed be our name. May you take us up on a cloud to heaven to dwell with you in eternity. Godly, John P. Mayer. It's the only prayer that Jesus ever taught his disciples as far as we know. The first concern voiced in the petition is not a need or problem of this present world, but rather a strictly eschatological desire that God reveal himself in all his power and glory, hallowed be your name, by coming to Israel to reign fully and definitively as king. Your kingdom come. A gospel without Israel, a gospel without the restoration of Israel, a gospel without the kingdom is incomplete. In John 14, Yeshua says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in me for the forgiveness of sins and go to heaven and everything will be fine. That's not what he says. John 14, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, these are some doozy quotes that I'm about to give you, which are radical departures from much of some of church teaching that I'm familiar with, which I think is relatively widespread throughout the evangelical community. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And we'll talk soon in the elementary principle about faith in God, but listen to this. Believe in God, believe also in me. This is from a book called uh, A New Vision for Israel by Scott McKnight. Whatever one makes of the apologetic value of Jesus' miracles, his primary purpose was not to witness to himself, though his deeds did do that. But to God and to God's kingdom, Jesus' view of the kingdom was theocentric and national. It was God's redemption for Israel. And he goes on, for Jesus, the kingdom was fundamentally theocentric and not Christocentric. To be sure, Jesus thought he was the agent of the kingdom, Mark 4.11, but he was still the proclaimer and not the proclaimed. Do you hear that? That's actually true. If we could invite Yeshua into our Shabbat services and have a sit down over a cup of coffee and ask him, how does that resonate with you? My deepest heart's conviction says, he would say, absolutely. For Jesus, the kingdom of God was God's kingdom. So it's only logical that he taught his disciples to pray, may your kingdom come. And so my friends, if if we don't know the kingdom, if we don't know that and how important it is and what it means, we're, we're left with an incomplete book. We have less than half of the story. Less than half, a half gospel and then some. We've found right there, we've found the something's missing, Paul. What is the good news? 
Those who respond to the calling of Yeshua, repent, turn to God through repentance, faith, immersion in my name, will reap the promises of the kingdom, resurrection, life within. So much of what he said, listen to this. I want you to just guess, as I read through this list of the parables by name, I want you to tell me what was at the center of the parable. I'll give you like at least three seconds at the end to answer this. He said, the parable of the sower, weeds among the wheat, the mustard seed, leaven, hidden treasures, pearl of great price, the unforgiving servant, laborers in the vineyard, the tenant farmers, the great banquet. What were they about? It didn't even take you three seconds. The kingdom. And what... What, what happens with all of the great things that I read you in that evangelical gospel? I mean, I mean what's missing? Well, we, we of course own in that the responsibility to own our sin. That's something that Yeshua asked us to do when he said repent. He said own it and stop doing it. That's your thing to do. That's the first part. To understand that our salvation is not by works, but faith, of course, there's power in that message. And as I said, Messiah's message began with the words, repent. It is a simple message. Repent. When you die, you'll go to heaven because of Jesus. That's a good, simple message. But it is incomplete. Paul's perceived gospel, that's what has taken up root in the primary function of the church of Jesus Christ, Paul's interpretation of the gospel. However, Paul's interpretation of the gospel is Jesus' gospel, even though he's talking to a different audience and he uses different words and different things, people perceive, and remember, Peter himself said, dude, Paul, you're hard to understand. Tone it down a little bit, buddy. You're too complicated. He didn't really say that. He just said he's hard to understand. But E.P. Sanders, who is a very, very, very well-known and wise New Testament scholar, says, the kingdom expected by Jesus is not quite that expected by Paul, that is to say, in the air and not of flesh and blood. It was a real kingdom but not that of an insurrectionist either. We, people love to talk about Jesus the rebel. He was coming to tear everything down and whip the money changers and beat the crap out of the Pharisees and every other thing under the sun. No, not that either. He spoke against zealotry and, and violence. It is like the present world, E.P. Sanders said. It has a king, leaders, a temple. <laughs> You're telling me there's going to be another temple? Yeah, I am. I'm not. The Bible is. Ezekiel, talk to him. Leaders, a temple, 12 tribes. It's not just a rearrangement of this present world, though. God has to step in, provide a new temple, the restored people of Israel, presumably a renewed social order, one in which sinners will have a place. And here's the thing I really want you to hear me say. Repent for the kingdom of God at, uh, is at hand is more than just the words of John and Jesus. Did you know outside of the Great Commission, Jesus gave some other instructions to people? Do you know what was at the center of those instructions? Let me read it to you. 
Luke 9. Now he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and the power to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere personal salvation in me. No, the kingdom of God. And I realize that this is still somewhat vague because we haven't dug extensively into the kingdom of God. But I will next week. The complete gospel. This is a little bit long, but this is courtesy of my colleague, Daniel Lancaster from the book Elementary Principles. I read you J.D. Greer's gospel. Now I want to read you the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Messianic Judaism. I want to read you the full gospel, okay? Repent. It's got to start right there. We know that. Repent because the messianic age is near. How near is it? So near that the Messiah has already been identified. Jesus of Nazareth, a son of David, attested to by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up and loosing him from the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father and having received the Holy Spirit has poured it out upon his disciples. Therefore, repent from your sins. Turn to God. Be immersed for the name of Jesus the King to become his disciple and you will receive the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. When he comes again, and here's the big transition. Here's the full gospel. When he comes again, he will bring the messianic era and establish the kingdom of heaven and everything that it entails. He will defeat the enemies of Israel, bring an end to the exile of the Jewish people, restore the kingdom to Israel just as the prophets predicted. At that time, God will raise his disciples from the dead to join him just as he raised Jesus from the dead. After the kingdom, then comes the final judgment when every person who ever lived must stand before the throne of judgment. The names of those who have obeyed King Jesus and trusted him for the forgiveness of their sins are recorded in the book of life along with the names of the saints. This promise is for Jewish people and for their children and for all who are far off, for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Bam, Daniel, woo! Now, as he says, I heard him say, it'd be a little bit difficult to fit that onto a little track that you leave for your waitress. But man, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the hope and the future that you have in the good news of Yeshua HaMashiach. It would be hard to communicate that quickly, but friends, we need to know those things. And, and listen, believe in me and go to heaven. I would never say, stupid. 
there's so much more to it than that. For, For some people, for some people, the simple entry point that says, I need someone to rescue me from what I have done in my life and to give me a hope and a future. And I don't really need to know all of that. I just want to know that wherever Jesus is, I'll be. And that is okay. But when teachers and preachers and entire denominations of people teach a gospel that excludes Israel and in essence is nothing but replacement theology, that is not okay. That is not okay. Why is it so special to go to Israel? Yes, it's where Jesus walked. Yes, you can get the best falafel on earth. Yes, you'll see and experience things that you will never see or experience again outside of the land. But do you know why I think it's so incredibly gut-wrenchingly spiritually powerful? Because that's where the promises are centered. And what is the promise? God is going to restore that land. That is where the kingdom of heaven will dwell. And when we go and we walk that land, it's almost as if that expectation and that feeling, like I can almost feel it now, that that feeling that this is my future. It's in the restored Israel. And the very same, very same anti-Jewish message that began to permeate the church in the first couple hundred years is the very same anti-Jewish message that allowed the church to lose the kingdom. It is nothing but, and I won't use the word anti-Semitic, that's too powerful. It's anti-Jewish. We've got to cleanse the Jews out of this thing. That's wrong. And next week, I want to continue by explaining to you exactly how the church lost the kingdom and what can we do about it. And the following week, we will talk about the real gospel, even though it might seem I just did that. There's more. And we will get through, and we will drink the biggest, heartiest, glass of elementary principal milk you've ever had in your life. Shabbat Shalom. We're building the kingdom and thankful that you're a part of that mission. If this teaching inspired you, please consider a financial gift to support the work of Shalom Macon. Visit MaconMessianic.com and click give online. May the Lord bless and keep you.